0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has released its first draft of a new wolf management plan. The Associated Press reports it's been more than two decades since the state's management plan has been updated. One part of the current wolf management plan is missing from the new one, a statewide population goal for wolves. Previously, the DNR's Natural Resources Board capped the statewide wolf population at 350, far below the 970 wolves that are estimated in Wisconsin. The new management plan will monitor the population of six hunting zones and decide whether to reduce, keep stable, or grow the populations in each individual zone. DNR officials say that this approach allows for more flexibility.
1: The Dane County Board has finalized their budget and now is headed to the desk of County Executive Joe Parisi. The 2023 budget comes to a total of $853 million dollars raising the property tax on the average Madison home by around $40. One of the biggest expenses in the budget is $16 million for a new election center for the Dane County Clerk's Office. The new election center would be a secure location for the county to store election equipment and ballots, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. One contentious item in the budget is the Dane County Jail. The budget reduces the scale of the jail from six stories down to just five, and includes half a million dollars for criminal justice reforms intended to reduce jail populations.
0: Dane County election officials had a busy day on Tuesday, but thankfully, they say it was a safe one. Channel 3000 reports that polling places across the county saw an increase in same-day registrations, with one location in Fitchburg registering over 600 new voters. Meanwhile, in the town of Middleton, voters experienced long lines to cast their ballot, with some having to wait over two hours. The town of Middleton has only one polling station, which was processing almost 300 voters per hour throughout the day. And while Dane County did see more partisan poll observers on Tuesday, County Clerk Scott McDonald says that overall, everything went smoothly.
1: The Dark Horse Art Bar on East Washington Avenue has announced it is closing its doors. Dark Horse opened in October 2021 and has served as not just a bar, but an art gallery and live music venue. Owner Patrick DePaula tells the Capital Times that the closure is due to financial reasons and that the bar may become a private event space after the bar's final day at the end of November.
0: There were fewer students in the Madison School District retrained, uh, I'm sorry, restrained and secluded last school year. However, a disproportionate number of those students were black or disabled. The district defines seclusion as a student being involuntarily confined in a room or area away from other students. And restraint is defined as immobilizing or reducing a student's ability to move freely. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the annual report outline of the data was presented to the Madison School Board on Monday night. While black students only make up around 19% of the school district's population, they accounted for nearly 50% of the students who were either secluded or restrained last year. In total, there were 486 instances of seclusion or restraint last year. Administrators say systemic racism is a driving factor in the disparity and that they plan to implement district-wide intervention training for staff.
1: While election day is officially over, that doesn't mean that all the votes are tallied quite yet. There are 125 provisional ballots issued by the city of Madison on Tuesday. Provisional ballots are ballots that are marked but not counted if a voter is not able to provide the proper identification on election day. The city of Madison estimates that at least 30% of all the provisional ballots will be counted. If you have a provisional ballot, be sure to bring a proper photo ID to the city's clerk's office by 4 p.m. tomorrow.
0: And finally, the Isthmus is going to look a little more crowded over the weekend. The Madison Marathon takes place on Sunday morning. There are a total of three races scheduled for Sunday, with a full marathon kicking off at 7 a.m. The race will close roads throughout downtown Madison, including parts of West Washington Drive, East Gorham, and North Sherman Avenue. You can find more information on the race route online at marath- MadisonMarathon.org. And now on to today's top stories. Just two, There's days. two days
1: after the midterm elections, the 2023 spring nonpartisan election is heating up. April elections will see a race for Supreme Court justice and many local offices in Madison, including Alder, school board, and mayor. Earlier today, the first candidate officially stepped into the race for mayor of Madison. WRT producer
2: Nate Wiggyhout has more. The race for mayor of Madison is on, and today, community leader Gloria Reyes threw her hat into the ring.
3: The people of Madison are unhappy about the current state of our city and are concerned about our future. Today, I am showing up for Madison, just as I have my entire career, to ensure that we build a city together for a future Madison for all. My name is Gloria Reyes, and I am running to be here next mayor. <laughs>
2: In an about 10 minute speech announcing her campaign atop the steps of the city county building, Reyes highlighted her strong ties to Madison and passion for giving back as a public official.
3: 50 years ago, my, my as migrant farm workers, my uh, parents marched on those capital steps from Wartowa, Wisconsin, to support the Cesar Chavez's movement to organize farm workers across the United States. On their visit, they walked up Baskin Hill on our University of Wisconsin campus, and they saw a vision that educational achievement would bring our family out of poverty and foster generational success. My parents fell in love with Madison and decided that Madison then was a place where they wanted to raise a family.
2: Reyes is a former member of the Madison School Board, spending some of her time as the board president. Most recently, Reyes was the CEO of Briar Patch Youth Services, a nonprofit organization providing resources for runaway, homeless, and at-risk kids in Dane County. She resigned that position in July of this year. Reyes also served as a deputy mayor under former Mayor Paul Soglin and was a Madison police detective, where she started Amigos en Azul to build connections with the Latino community. Speaking ahead of Reyes in support of her campaign was former Madison Police Chief Noble Ray, who praised Reyes for her work with youth.
1: No one has her unique capabilities that she has. She started with the Madison Police Department. She started Amigos and Azul, our friends in blue, to relate to kids. As a a mayor's assistant, she worked on violence interruption with our kids. More importantly, she walked the streets of Madison. She knows these kids. She knows what's going on in this community.
2: Other speakers also praised Reyes's work in education and commitment to building a better city for youth to flourish. Madison Alder and former council president Syed Abbas who has sometimes clashed with the current mayor, touted Reyes's leadership in youth issues.
4: We cannot live in silos. If you talk about young kids, our school system, you talk about role of the City of Madison to mentor and to provide programs from young kids, talk about our criminal justice system, and talk about how together we can invest our youth and to the City of Madison To do those things, you need a leadership who have a passion, vision, and experience. And that's what Gloria brings to the table.
2: Reyes did not discuss specific policy changes she would implement in the city of Madison, nor did she take questions from the press, saying she looks forward to presenting policies in the months to come. She did, however outlined top issues she sees facing the Madison community, like creating strong neighborhoods, revitalizing businesses, investing in education, creating housing, and dealing with environmental challenges. Reyes also pointed to rising crime and the need to invest in public safety.
3: I'm concerned about our Madison today. Over the last four years, violent crime has risen. Countless times every day we get notification about police investigating gunshots in our neighborhood car thefts and burglaries, and with our homes, of our friends and families. When I see trouble, I deliver solutions, and I step
2: up to serve. According to the Madison Police Department, violent crime slightly dropped in the city of Madison in 2021. Today's public announcement came just after Reyes filed her declaration of candidacy with the city, and just before the launch of her campaign website, ReyesForMayor.com. Today's announcement did not directly address incumbent Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who has not yet officially announced her re-election campaign. In a statement to WORT Today, a spokesperson for the Satya for Mayor campaign wrote, The mayor loves her job and isn't planning on going anywhere. She's working on delivering a balanced budget that focuses on our city's priorities and will have an official announcement at a more appropriate time. End quote. Rhodes-Conway does have an official election website, and she's been fundraising off of recent political battles, including a quash subpoena from Michael Gableman. The lawsuit calling for Rhodes-Conway, as well as other local officials across the state to be jailed for not testifying behind closed doors, has since been dismissed. Rhodes-Conway used that lawsuit in fundraising emails sent earlier this year, which helped her to raise over $20,000 by July. The deadline for candidates to declare their candidacy for Madison mayor is January 3rd. If more than two candidates enter the race, it would head to a primary election on February 21st. The spring election will take place on April 4th, 2023. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie
0: Colder, seasonal weather is making its way back to Wisconsin. And just like last winter, the region is in store for higher natural gas bills. Experts say there are ways to protect your household budget now and in the long run. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
4: With winter almost here, Wisconsinites are being warned they won't be getting a break on their heating bills this season. Experts say there are big and small steps households could take to reduce the impact. The Energy Information Administration predicts that Midwest households that rely on natural gas will spend an average of $1,000 on heating bills this winter. That's a 33% increase over last year. Whitney Hayes of the energy nonprofit Elevate agrees the region will see cost headaches in the coming months.
5: We're expecting gas prices to continue to go up this winter because of things like the war in Ukraine. And we're still doing a lot of recovery from COVID and shipping and supply
3: shock and whatnot. So we see it coming.
4: She advises that small things, such as making sure there's air sealing around windows and doors, can produce savings on your bill. And energy experts say electric heat pumps have come down in price and are now more reliable in extremely cold weather. David Collada of the Citizens Utility Board agrees that heat pumps are a strong alternative to natural gas, but he stresses they still might be out of reach for low-income households and that policymakers need to offer more incentives to make them accessible to everyone. Meanwhile, he says maximizing these options will make a difference.
6: There is sort of like a layer cake, and if you take advantage of this program and then you you know, seal cracks in windows and maybe install energy-efficient light bulbs, all of that works together holistically to help you basically save on the, the price of energy for your home.
4: Collada says for those worried about their heat being disconnected this winter, most Midwestern states have cold-weather rules, which require utilities to offer a payment arrangement to avoid that scenario.
6: Most utilities that we're aware of do have what's known as budget billing programs. Those don't save you money over the course of a year, but they smooth out your payments. So you pay less in the winter and more in the summer.
4: Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection.
1: The time is now 6.20 p.m. And you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While most of the races from Tuesday have been called for either one side or the other, one high-profile race is still up for grabs. That's the race for the usually sleepy position of Secretary of State, which, as of 5.30 this evening, has yet to be called. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggehaup spoke with Democratic incumbent Doug LaFollette about what makes this race different from other races he's faced over the last nearly four decades.
2: While Election Day has come and passed, there is still one race left to be decided, uh, at least as of noon today on November 10th, and that's the race for Wisconsin Secretary of State, where Democrat incumbent Doug LaFollette is looking to continue his streak in the position that he's held since 1983. Uh, he's taking on Republican Amy Loudonbeck, uh, and what is usually a pretty sleepy position has turned into one of the tightest races in the state. Joining me now on the line is current Secretary of State, Doug LaFollette. Thank you so much for talking with me here today.
7: No problem. It's always good to talk to folks in the Madison area on your great radio station.
2: So just to uh, just to start things off here, I asked you a little bit before, but, uh, you know, Election Day was about two days ago. Uh, What what have you sort of been doing for the last two days? Has there been just sort of a lot of waiting for election results to come out?
7: Yes, that's basically all one can do at that point. The, 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 The last votes have been counted and it takes some time to count them all. Some counties go faster than others, and the numbers change. They go up and down. I actually went to bed on election night about 1130. Uh, It had not been decided. But the next morning I got up and checked, and it turned out that I won the election by a fairly small number of votes, actually, somewhere around 6,000 or so. And so the problem now, of course, is there may be a recount, uh, we'll have to wait and see what the final numbers are, and then based on those final numbers, it's, it's possible that there would be a recount.
2: And and I want to ask you about uh, a possibility of a recount in a second here, but just to just to sort of start, what are what are your sort of thoughts on this race being so so tight? Were you sort of expecting uh, it to be this tight going into Election Day?
7: No question, I expected it to be very close. This is the. The most serious opponent I've had for many, many years, and they they spent a lot of money. And because it was a contested situation where the Republicans wanted very badly to take over the office so they could possibly control the elections in the future, I was expected to be very, very close.
2: And now, how you've, as I said before, you've held down this position uh, for for decades now. Have Have you ever had a race that's been quite as uh, tight as this? How does How does this year sort of compare to any past elections?
7: No, it's much different. In the past, it's always been uh, much less contested, uh, a lot less news coverage, and uh, of course, with the virus that came in the last couple of years, it changed campaigning a lot more. Uh, campaigning by uh, the internet and by uh, uh, Twitter and so forth. So this was quite a different election. And I expected it to be close. And of course, in my case, there were two independent candidates. And those candidates took almost 4% of the vote. So a lot of that vote would have gone to me if they would not have been in the race. And that's why I got fewer votes than Governor Evers, for example.
2: And now, like, like we said before, this is very tight. Uh, as of noon today, according to the uh, New York Times, you are ahead by about 7,000 votes. Uh, so, do, so you mentioned the possibility of a recount before. Uh, what, what are sort of your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think that there uh, will be a recount?
7: It's really hard to tell at this point. It's partly up to the numbers as to how close it gets. And it's probably up to my opponent and whether she wants to ask for one. Because as long as I'm ahead, it would be up to her to decide on something like that. But I, I support whatever happens. I believe in counting all the votes and make sure the votes are counted properly. And if there's a recount, so be it.
2: And, and have you heard anything about, um, because as, as I believe that this race still has not been officially called uh, as of yet. So ha- have you heard anything of when you expect that this race will be officially called?
7: Uh, The latest news I got this morning is the Election Commission is hoping to have it wrapped up officially by the end of the week. Uh, That would be sometime tomorrow. But again, it depends on every county. And if some counties don't get the stuff done quick enough, then it could obviously drag over until Monday because I doubt if they're going to work on the weekends.
2: And now I want to talk a little bit about the position itself, and probably the reason that this race is so tight is that your opponent, Amy Loudenbeck, as well as uh, many, many other uh, state Republicans for a while now, uh, are looking to transfer powers uh, over the elections away from the uh, State Elections Commission, which was originally started by Scott Walker, Uh, and they want to move those powers over to the Secretary of State. So I sort of want to know, what are your thoughts on that prospect, moving election powers over to the Secretary of State.
7: Well, I oppose that, and that's one reason why I ran for re-election. So hopefully if I win this election, which is looking very good, by the way, I'll be able to keep the election powers in the Independent Election Commission and away from a partisan politician who could possibly meddle with the election coming up in the next big presidential election in 24.
2: And, and why why do you see that as sort of a, a dangerous thing to put that into a, a more partisan elected position uh, as opposed to the State Elections Commission, which is a nonpartisan uh, committee there?
7: Well, because we've seen examples. In Florida a number of years ago, there was a disaster where the Republican Secretary of State tried to manipulate the election. There was a race in Ohio a few years ago. Again, a, a Republican Secretary of State tried to affect some elections in a a U.S. Senate race, I believe. And then, of course, last year uh, in this election where the Trump people all across the country, from from Georgia to Arizona and even Wisconsin, they tried to influence the election. And we don't want that to happen. That's why I've always opposed to having an elected official be the Democrat or Republican in charge of the elections.
2: And so now we're sort of running up against the clock a little bit here. Do you, do you have just any final thoughts that you want people to know out there who are sort of looking at this race, uh, and what, what do you want them to know?
7: Well, I want them to know that we'll count the votes, uh, the best that can be done, and the outcome will be decided. I'm looking very optimistically towards it. I look forward to serving the people for the next four years. I hope I can get the resources to do this. The Republicans have taken away much of my staff and resources that it's hard to get the work done. I'm hoping that I can convince them to restore some of the people to the office so we can actually get the work done that the people of Wisconsin asked my office to do.
2: And just before we go here, can can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, What what does your office sort of look like for the last uh, couple of years here?
7: Well, what's happened is Republican governors, including Scott Walker, have stripped the office down. So I only have one full-time employee and it's hard to get the work done because we have a lot of work coming in every day. We get requests, at least 50 or more requests for document processing that are very important to the, to the business people of Wisconsin. And if that one person gets sick or takes a vacation, which they have the right to do, then we fall further behind. So it's only practical that this office should have probably two more people And then we can get the work done for the people of Wisconsin on time and quickly, as it should be done.
2: Well, I've been talking with Doug LaFollette, current secretary of state here in Wisconsin, uh, about his yet to be called election, which as of recording here, LaFollette is up just a couple of a few thousand votes. Uh, Mr. LaFollette, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me here today.
7: My pleasure. You're welcome.
1: Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us.
0: Every other Thursday, our contributor Jonah, Jonah Chester sits down with Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government. This week on Transparency Talk, they explain when where, and how you're allowed to record government meetings.
8: I can see clearly now the rain is gone.
9: All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how you holding up this week? Hey, Jonah, I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm doing just fine and dandy, Tom. Uh, Still recovering from a late night covering the election on Tuesday into Wednesday morning, but I'm feeling good, and I'm ready to jump into today's topic. We're chatting about uh, recording government, you know, video recordings, audio recordings, what have you. Tom, let's go ahead and jump right in because I can't think of a clever intro to this one. So what are your constitutional and statutory rights for recording uh, government meetings?
6: Well, one of the starting parts you want to begin with is that Wisconsin is a one-party consent state, which means that you generally have the right to record any conversation. I think the, the statute uses the term communication, but it's kind of like a conversation that you are involved in, that you are a part of. You can also record other people, even if you're not involved, so long as you're somewhere where the people don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, which is kind of a a legal term of art and generally means if if somewhere if you are somewhere you would expect to be private and left alone your home closed office that's not open to the public uh, you can't be recorded there without your without somebody's consent that's one of the major statutes so in my line of work I often get to the open meetings law so you actually have the right to record video or audio record any meeting of any governmental body in the state. Uh, so long as you're not interfering with the meeting somehow, uh, you can set up your equipment uh, somewhere out of the way and go ahead and make yourself a copy of it.
9: Now, those are recordings for government meetings. Court hearings and court proceedings are a slightly different beast, however.
6: Yeah, there's a long history in America. I, I, I suppose it doesn't go back hundreds of years because we weren't recording things when, when the country was founded. But for the longest time, it's generally been the case that you cannot record either audio or video or even take photographs inside a courtroom without the court or the judge's permission. So specifically in Wisconsin, that's left up to individual judges on a one-on-one, by one case-by-case basis to decide what to allow. You know, general rule, they will allow media to take video recordings, but it's not a hard and fast rule, and there's sometimes where courts have said, this is too high profile, I don't want it to be sensationalized, I'm not going to allow anything, and it's, it's, it's kind of a problem that way. But When you get up to the, the Supreme Court level, the Wisconsin Supreme Court arguments are live-streamed, so there is video that is live-streamed and also archived, recorded, that you can watch on Wisconsin Eye. That is a private company, though, and I, I my understanding of the current status is you have to be a subscriber to get their archives, but you can live stream on their website for free. But the court also does put out the audio, both uh, on a stream and a recording. So anybody can get that off of the court's website, wicourts.gov. How about the United States Supreme Court? It's been audio live streamed for uh, a few years now. But video and photography is strictly prohibited and they have been very, very adamant about that. So even though you have a good number of state Supreme Courts that allow video recording and streaming, the U.S. Supreme Court does not.
9: Now, I knew that about the U.S. Supreme Court, that they don't allow video streaming. Why is that? Why have they been so reticent to introduce, like, cameras into the mix? If you've already got the audio stream... You know what's a, What's a TV? How's a TV camera going to change that situation at all?
6: You hear a few different excuses. One big one is that they don't want lawyers grandstanding when they are giving their arguments, kind of playing the media, playing the public instead of just presenting their case to the court. Every so often, somebody stands up in court and interrupts it with a, with a protest, and they're swiftly removed. And there's fears that well, if their video. If that's video recorded, or especially if it's live stream, that will just encourage people to uh, to engage in that kind of shenanigans. This issue came up kind of too in Wisconsin when COVID started and the courts went to live streaming their all their uh, hearings, and that happened very quickly, and they did a good job of it. They started out on YouTube first, and YouTube was automatically creating archived recordings of these, all these hearings, just just your day-to-day sentencing, your initial appearances, your scheduling conference, everything. It was all out there. And people started asking for it, and then judges started deleting them. And we looked into that, and it, it turns out that there was actually a, a, a long series of internal emails among the judges and the judicial administrators about this, and you, you heard some of the, these same kind of things. We don't want to be recorded. We don't want those things to be out there. We're worried that people will edit the recordings and make it look like we said something, or they'll take my quote out of context. And it went on, but then in the, in the end, they moved away from YouTube to DAcast. Cast, I think is the software they're using. It does not make a recording, uh, just uh, just live streams.
9: We touched on it a little bit at the top, but there is generally assumed that you can record anything if it's generally in a public area, correct? Or like you, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy.
6: Yeah, this is uh, this has been developed in the last ten years or so. Uh, in the federal courts, typically, and it's usually come up in the in the context of recording police who are you know making arrests or doing investigations outside somewhere there they can be seen from a public place like the streets, the sidewalks, the parks. And courts have held that you have a First Amendment right to record police in those kinds of settings. And how they get to it is they say, well, these these areas are traditional public forums; they're the places where people would traditionally gather and discuss things and and shout their slogans and hold up signs. And, and those have always been protected. They kind of extrapolate from that and say, well, if you want to express what police are doing in those areas, you have the right to record that first so that then you can engage in expression by sharing those recordings. So that right is clearly established. Uh, and we think that the the kind of the legal community thinks that it would likely be extended to any government employee uh, acting outside in a public place, and there's a chance, although possibly a lesser chance, that it would also apply inside of government buildings, at least in the places where the public is normally allowed to go. So you know, as you walk up to the front counter of your local city hall, right there. Uh, but if you you know if you go back into a back room for something, you know maybe you wouldn't be allowed to record.
9: All right. That's all we got for this week. Uh, Thanks so much, as always, for joining me, Tom. I appreciate your time. Always glad to.
6: Take care, Jonah. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know.
1: This week on Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhow and Pat Hansberg get ready for the colder temperatures and take a look at the fish action on Dane County Lakes.
2: Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS bait shop here in Madison. Uh, it's been it's been a nice couple of days here, Pat, but that's that's not looking like it's going to stick around for too much longer. So, uh, how how have the fish been biting?
5: Fishing's been great around town. It's um, you know the the walleyes have been up shallow and night action for shore anglers for those fish has, has been really great, especially on Lake Mendota and Manona. Um, but um, you know it's uh the time of year when the fish are getting bulked up for winter so uh they're hungry and they're they're ready to be caught
2: all right so as i as i sort of said before it's been it's been pretty nice the last few days i didn't i'm not wearing a coat today that's for sure uh but i believe starting tomorrow is when we're going to start dipping into those temperatures i believe even dipping into some freezing temperatures so how how is that going to sort of affect the fishing around here what what do the fish do when you know it drops into those freezing temperatures
5: well, you know, the fish actually, like I said, they're getting ready for winter. So they're taking advantage of any, uh, any chance they can get to find a meal and the cooler temps don't affect them too much. And until we get really cold watered close to, you know, freezing point. But, um, generally, uh, the fish are in a <clears throat> great mood, um, to be, uh, you know, to be caught, but, um, it's the fishermen that have his trouble you know dealing with the temperatures and, and being comfortable out there can, can definitely be a struggle
2: it's definitely difficult to uh, tie a tot if you tie a knot if you are uh, wearing wearing thick gloves like that so let's 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 uh, start off with looking at some Dane county water here let's start off with mendota what's been happening
5: well like I mentioned the walleye bite up here has just been fantastic folks are getting fish uh, at tenny park at night uh, very regularly but a lot of the shore spots around town the warner uh, boat launch break wall has been good Uh, university shoreline's been great Um, so lots of good walleye being caught still uh, lots of good smallmouth bass up shallow Uh, and the pike bite on mendota continues to be going really strong a lot of the fish in in that 20 to 30 inch range but uh, i do hear about uh, regular 40 inch class fish uh, being caught every week
2: and now we you, you mentioned the shore fishing there, which is something that I've heard as well has been do, doing really good as of late. What about what about like on the water, like out on a boat or something? Have you been hearing anything much there? Oh, sure.
5: Yeah, I get lots of folks come in still getting their boats out. And um, the one of the biggest problems around Madison is uh, with access for a boat. So the city of Madison pulled all of their piers except for one each on uh, each of the lakes. So on... Lake Mendota, they have a, a launch still at the Warner Park boat launch here on the north side. Uh, and they also have, I guess, they do have one at Marshall Park too on the far west side. Uh, but the um, Lake Monona, all the piers are pulled except for at Olin on the south side of the lake. But folks that are making it out in their boats are doing well, of course, along shore in shallow water, but also anywhere there's uh, mid lake structures, so mid lake humps where it comes up shallow have uh, been real productive. All
2: right. And you mentioned Monona there. So let's talk about that. What's happening on Lake Monona?
5: Well, Monona continues to be a big musky factory. Uh, they have, it's a world-class musky fishery out there. So those fish are hungry. And a lot of the folks come in the shop here are buying up the, uh, 12 and 14 inch suckers that we have here in the, in the bait tanks and using those and, and doing really well. So the musky bite's been fantastic, but, um, uh, also, the walleye bite on the south end of the lake, kind of along John Nolan uh, and, and over to the wall, as they call it, at the Monona Terrace. All, all those areas have been really good for walleyes and also some crappies in the evenings, too, down there.
2: All right. And moving on over to Wabisa. What's been happening on Wabisa? Anything, uh, anything new?
5: Not really. I mean, it's uh, Wabisa being connected to Monona the way it is. Uh, it's pretty much the same fishery you've got a great musky fishery down there. Uh, the walleye bite has been picking up down there too. Some of those fish I've been hearing about are a little bit deeper. So maybe 10 to 20 feet for some of those fish. Um, but you know, the panfish bite down there has been great and particularly on the south end of the lake. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, oh, and there's Upper Mud Lake, which is a, on the north side of uh, Lake Wabisa. You can access it up there. has had some great uh, bass fishing in there still, and there's a dredge hole in that lake um, where uh, they've been getting lots of panfish, so lots of good fish in the Wabisa Lake area.
2: All right, now just a final lake here. Let's talk about Wingra. I know we touched on it a little bit last week, I believe, so let, what's been happening on Wingra?
5: I have heard a couple. I think last week I hadn't heard much, but just this last week I would heard of a couple people doing well on muskies down there. I think that's what we talked about, the great muskie fishery that that is for being such a small lake. They really have great numbers of muskies down there, Um, so that's been hot lately. But um, Also some bass in there, some good uh, pike action to be had, and um, lots of tiny panfish uh, if you're looking to keep a kid busy.
2: All right, now let's move over to some uh, moving water. Let's start off with the Yahara River. What's happening on that?
5: Well, pretty much the same thing as it's been all fall. All the Anywhere you can find a dam. So, you know, in Stoughton, there, there's a good spot there. You got um, the spillway at uh, Kiganza and the spillway at Babcock. All of those areas have been um, great. A lot of fish stacking up behind there. You got walleyes moving up. Uh, some white bass, and uh, still hearing about some catfish being caught in those areas.
2: Now, obviously, with uh, the running water on the Yahara it's not going to freeze quite as soon as, say, any of the lakes will. So, you know, that's that's sort of coming up on the horizon here, unfortunately. So, uh, what's what's uh, what happens to the rivers and such once the uh, once the lakes start to freeze over?
5: Well, the fishing can definitely slow, and if I was fishing a river, I would uh, definitely. Um, pare down my presentation so smaller lures and slower is going to be uh kind of the name of the game but those fish don't really go anywhere uh they they might uh, move downstream a little bit to some um slower moving deeper um wintering areas where, where they'll hang out uh, in in those areas but um you know the, the like I said the fish they, they don't really go anywhere so you just got to just got to find them in the, in their uh, winter spots. And like I said, that's typically a little slower uh, moving water and, and deeper.
2: And thankfully, it's that's not looking like it's going to be happening for a little while yet. We still have a little bit of time. So uh, moving on over to the, uh, let's do the Rock River. What's been happening on on the Rock?
5: The Rock River has been uh, producing some good white bass and walleye and even some catfish in between Fort Atkinson and um the Jefferson Dam, uh, the Jefferson Dam in particular,ly uh, those fish are are kind of stacking up there a little bit. Um, I haven't heard a lot coming out of Lake koshkonong which the Rock River is. You know, Lake koshkonong is a wide spot in the Rock River there. Um, typically, though, they catch good numbers of walleyes where the um, river dumps in on kind of the northeast end of the lake, I guess. And uh, so that's uh, usually a pretty safe bet for walleyes, but I haven't heard much specifically. You know, Rock River is just a little bit out of our range, but um, folks do go down there and, and do well on, on walleyes for sure.
2: Well, Pat, we are running up against the clock here today, so let's just uh, wrap things up. Any final fishing advice for all the people out there?
5: Well, you know, we've got uh, today's, like you said, probably the last nice day of weather for a while, but uh, that doesn't mean the, the fish stopped biting. You just uh, got to bundle up and, and get out there.
2: Well, Pat, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling one number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Pat, thank you so much for talking, and uh, good luck out there.
5: Thanks, Nate. You too.
0: It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Kevin Hampton is the curator of history for the Wisconsin Veterans Museum. In this edition of Radio Chipstone, as Veterans Day approaches, Hampton shows contributor Jennifer Fields how soldiers carried a little bit of home in their pockets during wartime.
10: We list what you are supposed to pack when you go off to war, and one of the things is housewife. And someone asked me, well, how do you fit a housewife in a bag? And of course, from my standpoint, I'm thinking, well, it's just a small little sewing kit. But from there, they're thinking an actual person. It's a necessity as a soldier. If you get a hole in your uniform, you have to fix it. If you pop a button, you have to fix it. So the neat thing, especially in 1861, is you, you imagine a soldier going off to war and being nice in his uniform and thinking he's nice, prim and proper. And of course, here his wife goes, now make sure you take this with you too, because she packed it, so she knows what's in there and what he needs. He has no clue. I mean, you can imagine the soldiers probably never really sewed on a button before. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't, but she's packed enough needles for him. She's packed enough thread, so she knows what will be necessary. So that's where the housewife idea comes in.
8: It almost looks like if you could imagine upholstery furniture from that time period, it looks like upholstery fabric.
10: Yes. It's really interesting to see the range. You've got some that are straight, just wool fabric, same color, very monotonous. You've also got some that have beautiful, ornate embroidery. A lot of people will have their names embroidered into it. Some, even if you're an officer, we have one in our collection that has gold lettering for their name, for the colonel, and it really is up to, the one, the status of the person and the status of the family who it leaves, but also, too, the status of the soldier there. But it's really neat to find a piece like this one you see here. This one is actually not carried by an officer. This is carried by a private soldier, which is fantastic because you imagine that that was just a little bit of flair that they wanted to add color into this very monotonous, very uniform life. And so you add, you know, if say you're even a soldier in the South, you have a solid gray uh, uniform. You're pretty much the same all the way through. It's all very dull. And here's this beautiful green and, and yellow and red a piece that you can carry with you in your haversack kind of adds a little spice to life I like to think.
8: I mean for all we know that the inside was a part of her dress or his favorite shirt or his grandmother's blouse or something that really when he saw that pattern and Mm -hmm. felt that material in his head is his tactile Mm -hmm. connection to that person.
10: The housewife no matter what will be the pretty much standard link to home for every soldier because every soldier needed to repair things. Sometimes you know, but sometimes you have to kind of assume the story behind it all with the relationship of the person to his family member.
8: That's what I like about material culture. We get to make up stories and create narrations with just these little bits and pieces of information that we find and that we see in artifacts. Yeah. Now, we're walking into a room that's kind of hard for me to walk into. We're getting the World War One, World War II, Vietnam.
10: The, the thing that I always remind people about the Civil War, and I, that's what I love about the small things, even like the housewife, is it still makes it human we can be so disconnected it's 150 years ago it's a long time ago but you have the opportunity to look at these personal items and realize this was somebody's brother this was somebody's son but then you come into a room like this and you've got these the instruments of death the instruments of warfare it becomes so almost robotic almost so industrial that it really removes a human element from it in a sense and i think that's what is the a change not only in society but also in especially in warfare over time. As you go forward in time, you remove a human element. You remember looking at the sewing kit and the housewife in the Civil War era. Now look at the sewing kit here from World War II. Even the sewing kit here from World War II, this is standard issue. One, because they realize that soldiers need it, so now it's not just up for the individual soldier to provide it. But two, you don't see the color and flare. It's very industrialized. It's very much this idea of an assembly line almost. It's the same color as your uniform, same color as the other equipment, because it's the uniformity. It's the regulations that all of a sudden become a lot more uh, strict than especially in the volunteer army where they just volunteered for a few years or the duration of the war, whereas here you're volunteering in the directly into the federal service not the state service
8: okay Kevin so now we're downstairs in the collection aspect of the museum and I see a fabulous housewife yes and hair
10: Uh, this housewife you can see is extremely elaborate it's got wonderful detailing it's even got beads here on the edging but it's also in this pocket here had a little glass container and had a, a strand of his loved one's hair kept in there as well
8: it's in, Considering what it's been through, it's, been, it's in pretty pristine condition. I love the red and the white of it, the red and the green, and then when you flip it over, you see this this ornate beadwork on it.
10: In an atmosphere of neutrality in colors and in uniformity in colors, this speaks so much to the personal aspect. From this, you could even assume that, okay, his wife clearly wanted him to have color in his life, wanted to have this idea of it's not just monotony, it's not just mud and rain and wool and things like that, but this is the finer things in life almost. It's something as simple as a sewing kit can reflect the finer things in life. That's fantastic.
8: It's just absolutely gorgeous. I kind of want it, Kevin.
10: (laughs) (laughs) We we could see about a reproduction. We could see about that.
8: (laughs) And it has the red, white, and blue, which I think is so subtle, but it is red, white, and blue. I have this notion in my head that with each stitch, She's like wishing this child well, like she's Boy. wishing her child come home.
10: And that, that I think, is so powerful. This isn't something that they had at the house. She had to make it specifically for this purpose. So the time, like you said, the time that she spent putting this together, figuring out the pockets, and then figuring out what to go in it, what is he going to need? That is not only the, the practicality of it, but also the love and the thoughtfulness of she, he, she, he should be able to take care of himself out in the field too. We'll, we'll make sure he's got what he needs to do that.
8: And just the tears that fell on that while mm-hmm. she was sewing it. I mean, can you imagine creating something so lovely for your son that you yep. hope you see come back?
10: And then, you, and of course, you imagine. I'm picking it up; it's quite heavy. You imagine him going, "Oh, good heavens! I'm supposed to carry this thing in my pocket." But I can imagine on the battlefield, this made him feel a little bit closer to home. You know, this guy who initially, when you're going off to war, you think. Oh, it won't be that bad. It's just like a little vacation almost. It's just, I'll be a little gone, gone away from home for a little bit. But I can guarantee you, six months into his service, he was cherishing this more than he was cherishing anything else that he had with him.
8: For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields.
1: And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at Six. Your reporter this evening was Mike Moen with Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors, Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast, and Ms. Sholly Pippen is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, don't forget that you can listen to WORT on your phone on the WORT app, and you can subscribe to the local news wherever you get your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Stay tuned and good night.